This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 75. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 75 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. It's great to be back here celebrating 75 episodes. We're going to celebrate kind of in a mild fashion because it's truly the 100th episode that I'm going to celebrate on in a big way. But 75 episodes, that's a milestone, I would say. So, uh, yeah, here we are, coffee in hand, ready to go. Just got off a great Skype call with our next guest, Mitch Dane. You may have heard me mention Mitch's name in the past. Mitch is the studio partner of Vance Powell in Nashville. They have Sputnik Sound. And uh, I had a great conversation with Mitch. He's got a very unique story, and I'm not going to spoil it. You're going to take a listen, and you'll see what I mean. As far as the people he's worked with, I think probably the most notable that most of you would know is the band The Jars of Clay. And then some of the other ones that uh, you may or may not know, uh, he's worked with Coyote Keen, Mr. and Mrs. Something, The Hummingbirds, Unspoken, Hannah Miller, uh, Victor and Penny, Ryan Scott Travis. So maybe you know some of those names, maybe you don't. But anyways, uh, obviously the most important thing is the conversation with the individual, as it always has been really throughout all of these episodes. You know, we've had 75 episodes. Technically, we've had 74 guests. In each of them, many of you who, if you're new to the podcast, you'll note that you don't know who some of these people are and some people you know. Some are household names. Some are people that you read about in magazines and you see on YouTube. And some of them are just, you know, uh, unknown people, just working working folks doing their thing. And that's been the intent the whole time. It's not really uh, a popularity contest. I'm not trying to get the most, uh, get people on who have the most major label credits. It's mostly been about just the work, the work, the workflow, the business, how do you do it? And I have to say, especially after my conversation with Mitch today, um, I'm in a pretty reflective mode about these last episodes, and I'm really just uh, fascinated and I would say is probably a key word and, and um, contemplative about the whole thing because really, I mean, out of these episodes, you know, on the surface, somebody might say, oh, a podcast about, you know, recording people, recording engineers, producers, et cetera. You know, they might think, well, those, you know, most of those answers are, you know, going to be the same. It's going to be all the same gobbledygook technical talk. And it's not, you know, you all know it's not. Really what's key to this is the people and the stories and the advice and, uh, the you know, the good things that people have gone through, the bad things people have gone through, um, and the fact that they're, you know, still out there trudging along because they love it uh, and how they manage to keep it going. So... What, where am I going with all this? Uh, nowhere in particular, to be honest with you. I'm just, I'm just thinking about all these different people and their stories and how each of their stories, I have to say, you know, you can't do these interviews without the stories and the advice and all that impacting you. And I don't know if it impacts you the same way it does me, but, you know, I, I, I talk to these people and, you know, all these conversations, whether you know it or not, are completely unscripted, you know, and the, the first, 
question I always get is, well, do you want to send the questions ahead of time when it comes to these interviews? <clears throat> and I always say no. It's just more of a chat than it is a, an interview, and there's no predetermined questions because it's just off the cuff. And I can't do these interviews without some part of that person's personality um, really influencing me. And no, I can't say that there is a conversation I, I have had that hasn't influenced me in some, you know, positive way, which is good because, you know, when I started the show, I was coming from a place of, well, I got to rebuild because my studio situation didn't work out and I have to rethink and retool. And it's really got me to think through who I am, what I want to do and how I want to do it through these conversations. And I hope that as you've listened to it from the listener perspective, I hope it, I hope it grabs you the same way. Um, I hope that something positive comes out of it. So that's that, you know, just a kind of a, an observation more than anything about the whole thing. So um, I ask that if you've uh, been with me this far and you've listened through, um, I encourage you to stick it out. Cause I, uh, I think that we're going to have uh, many more great conversations and, if you have listened along the way, I know many of you, I'm starting to, uh, well, not starting to, there's a lot of names that, you know, I always see those of you who like the show on the Facebook page or you comment or you send me messages and suggestions of people to interview. I'm deeply appreciative of it. And it's, it's truly been a great journey thus far and the journey will continue. It's, uh, it's nice. It's nice to have these talks with people. I, I, it makes me not feel so much in a bubble with all of it. You know, so let's get to it. I'm just going to hold my coffee cup up. There it is. Or my coffee mug, I should say, or my whatever, my travel mug. I'm holding my coffee up is the, is the, is, is the point to say cheers to all of you who have listened along the way. Uh, here's to 75 episodes and here's to continuing on. So uh, I drink to all of you this coffee. How about that? Does that sound Sounds celebratory, feels celebratory. All right, so I'll drink. I'll drink a sip. Everybody, drink a sip with me. Mm, that's hot. Wow, but it's good. All right, so um, let's get to it. Mitch Dane here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> I'm good now. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for doing this. Thank you. Good to be here. For the audience, uh, you and I met through Vance mm -hmm. at the Potluck Audio Conference, Vance Pal, that is, a yeah. um, number of years ago. I can't exactly remember when, but... Uh, it was in New Orleans, I think it was. Was it in New Orleans, huh? Yeah. Okay. I thought you were a, I thought you were a fantastic person, and, in, uh, and of course, you were hanging out with uh, Vance Pal, so... <laughs> You know, and you were studio partners with him, so I thought, well, this guy can't can't be too bad, huh? Yeah, that's my claim to fame. Yeah, being partners with Vance Bell. Yeah. Anyways, you're tolerating <laughs> you're tolerating Vance. So. <laughs> He's not so bad. <laughs> He's not so bad. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, uh, or or bring on the show, just so there's clarification. So you were concerned about your voice mm -hmm. uh, being heard with great clarity and. That that was something that you brought up, I think, when I first met you. Uh, you talked about how it's not that you have been smoking cigarettes all your life. <laughs> yeah, since uh, two. <laughs> yeah, I started smoking at age two. Yeah. Um, this is actually the result of uh, a motorcycle accident, if I recall. 
at 17? I was 14. 14, 14. And you actually ran into a barbed wire fence or a fence? Yeah, it was a a, a wire across the trail for a boundary, property boundary. Mm -hmm. And it it actually cut my trachea and esophagus in two. And I was was dead for several minutes. Really? And it... um, it's a pretty crazy, tragic accident. I had to undergo 33 surgeries in over seven years. And for five years, I had a tracheostomy tube that I had to breathe through. So, yeah, it's, it was pretty life-changing. Wow. That's, that's an unbelievable story, but, uh, but I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe you. Um, so... That that happened at fourteen, and so that's obviously over time. Has your voice grown to achieve more fullness, or or has has it all, has it been a struggle? I'm I'm not. I wouldn't know how that would affect one. Well, when I was eighteen or nineteen, the doctors told me that it's not going to get much better. And at that time, I had that trach tube, and I didn't want to spend the rest of my life with this trach tube, so I um opted to get a surgery that lasered out one of my vocal cords mm-hmm. and allowed me to breathe without the tube. But it left my voice like this. So it has gotten some better. And I actually have some pitch control, which is bizarre. My friends all kind of accept it, and it never really comes up until I meet someone new. Right. And, um, and and I only bring it up just just because, uh, like I say, I don't want people to think you're like some diehard smoker. Yeah, <laughs> which people think that anyway, so yeah. I don't care. This guy <laughs> drinks whiskey and smokes all day long. <laughs> <laughs> some of that's true. <laughs> some of that's true. Um, so on, uh, on to uh, recording matters. As far as, um, just so people know, like, where where you're at now, you're in Nashville, and mm-hmm. you're part of, uh, Sputnik Sound, which is a studio partnership, it seems, I think you've had with Vance Powell for a number of years mm-hmm. and uh, started out in a previous building. And you're currently in a new building, which I'm under the impression uh, you you bought the building and Vance, is, Vance rents from you. And mm-hmm. How did Sputnik Sound come about in the, in the prior building and were there any other incarnations? Yeah, it actually started in the basement of one of the guys in the band Jars of Clay, and they, he had a, an empty basement, and I had a bunch of gear, and we are like, hey, let's finish out your basement, put all my gear in it. So I was there for a few years, then they moved, so I had to find a place. And a friend of mine, Jakir King, not to name drop, but it's a fact, he, uh, he asked me if I wanted to go together on this place in the House of Blues, mm-hmm. which is down the street. Isn't that where Ryan Hewitt is now? He's in part of it, not the okay. same room or building. Okay. But, yeah, he's over there now. So Jakir and I were there for a couple of years, and when he moved out, it was empty for a little bit, and I talked Vance into coming in from Blackbird. He was a Blackbird. He's a chief engineer over there. Yeah, we've been together ever since. Probably, it's been over 10 years. Wow, that's quite a while. Yeah, and I was renting at House of Blues for 11 years 
and thought, what am I doing? Just wasting this money. So I found a little two-bedroom house and essentially gutted it and turned an 890-square-foot house into a 3,300-square-foot studio. So here we are. You've been in this new building not that long, really. Two years, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. And there's so many studios in Nashville Mm -hmm. um, so that when, when it comes to putting a studio in, say, a house, I assume the city does not have a big problem with that. No, especially in Berry Hill. It's kind of its own incorporated town. We have our own police department that that um, trolls the neighborhood. It's pretty, it's pretty great, um, and it's zoned dual purpose. So there's lots of businesses and houses here. This isn't a house currently, right? It's a house, but we've modified it so much that it'd be difficult for someone to call it their home. Within the neighborhood, there are like residential, you know, situations happening with families and such. And well, there might be a few. But mm-hmm. most of them are businesses. So that's this. That's where things are at right now. So take me back prior to getting into recording and how you got into it. I'm sure your story is is somewhat similar to to many in that you were influenced at a young age in some capacity. Take us to that point of where it started to click and you thought, "Aha! I think I know what I want to do." Hmm. Well, I was raised in a very small town in Missouri. And my parents were pretty old, older than most of my other friends' parents. I wasn't great at sports, didn't enjoy it. And I found that I could play the piano and guitar a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when you're young, you search for identity. And I thought, well, I'll be a musician. And the small town quickly helped me find my identity in that. And... I started playing in some local bands. And once I had my accident, it um, kind of changed things a little bit, allowed me to listen to music differently because I couldn't speak. Couldn't talk for two years. So I just listened and, and practiced and wrote. And I think that in some ways really empowered my production gifts you know, to be able to listen and hear songs, hear conversations. I'd sit in the back seat and hear two people talking and realized she's not hearing what he's saying and he doesn't really care what she's talking about and wanting to fix it through language or whatever. So I think it helped me as a producer. But anyway, back to your question. I, um, Started doing some instrumental productions and writing songs. And as my voice progressed, places started asking me to come share this story and sing some songs. So it it became kind of a career. And uh, these uh, youth groups and colleges would have me come tell my story because it's so fantastic, so um, sensational. Mm-hmm. Being dead and motorcycle wreck, it just sounds unreal, like you said. Yeah. So I traveled for 15 years doing as an artist, recorded seven records. Somewhere in the middle of there, 
another artist asked me to help him produce a record. And I enjoyed that process so much. I, I want to interrupt yeah. you, if I may, for a sec. I'm, I just want to go back for a little bit. Not being able to speak for two years and that intense, well, I mean, that reliance uh, and on just listening. As you look back on that, obviously that trained you for what you're doing now in ways that you probably didn't really, you know, didn't think about at that point. Yeah. I don't know who said this or implied it, but sometimes when tragedy happens, it takes decades to look back and realize that it was kind of a gift and it helped shape who I am and how I work, how I view life, that if that wouldn't have happened, I'd be a different person. And I'm not sure if I'd like that person. Well, I mean, just you're mentioning, you know, being in the front of a car and hearing two people talk in the back of a car. The intensity of focus on on something as simple as a conversation between two people, being able to really, I mean, not to be sexist, but let's face it, guys, we're not great listeners. It's no. it's kind of, I don't know if it's we're just predisposed to that or it's genetic, but we have to really learn to do that. Yeah. I do. So for you to be at a relatively young age and have that ability, and I know that maybe maybe people aren't really seeing the importance of that as as I am right now, but I'm I'm thinking, wow, that's that's a really great ability to have. It's almost as if you went blind mm-hmm. and your hearing became so acute. And that's usually people usually associate, okay, someone like Ray Charles, he's blind, so he yeah. can, you know, of course have incredible hearing, but people don't usually associate that uh, increase in uh, sensory awareness with the inability to speak. Yes. I think that goes for hearing and also goes for listening. And um, I think there's a difference (laughs) between the two. And you ask any of my friends, I'm not a big talker. And I think when I couldn't talk, I realized that the only two important things that you have to say are, I'm hungry and I have to go to the bathroom. And you can live without talking, except for those two. Um, um, you, you almost were forced to live a monk's, like a, like a monk's life. Like uh, some of those, uh, I'm not sure what, I hate to say what brand of monk, but the, this, the, t- the type of uh, religion where you just don't speak. You take yeah. a vow of silence. Yeah. You took a forced vow of silence yeah. as, a, as a result. Yeah, I was forced to be an observer, which is okay. It's good. So just back to, you know, touring and speaking and, and, and recording as an artist, you said for 15 years? Mm-hmm. Yep. To, and that all revolved around this story of, of your accident? Yes. Yeah. I'd, a typical show would be hour long, and I'd share my story for about five, ten minutes in that hour and sing songs and sell records. It, um, I end up getting a lot of letters from people, a lot of conversations after shows. Like, what makes you tick? And, and I, I come from a, a Christian background mm-hmm. somewhat, so I think my faith had a lot to do with that. And it was definitely somewhat infused in, in not the language, but just, I guess, the hope that... that not every tragedy is a bad thing. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It, it totally makes sense. 
with with your Christian background, I know that you have a connection to uh, the band The Jars of Clay, mm -hmm. which is uh, typically identified as a Christian artist. Did you, at some point did you meet them in 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 that process, or did, did the, you know? Am I fast forwarding too quick? No, no, no. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the story goes, but one or two of them went to a camp where I was actually playing when they were in high school. Mm -hmm and bought my record and passed around with a couple of buddies. And when they moved to Nashville, they got in touch. And also one of them went to church with, where the church was where I was going. And um, at lunch, they realized that I uh, produced records and that working relationship slowly started. And that one of them is my best friend. And the rest of them are dear, dear friends. Um, had lunch with one of them yesterday. So, yeah. Your involvement with Jars of Clay led to, didn't you win a Grammy or, or be nominated for a Grammy for your work with them? Yeah, we uh, won a Grammy with Vance Powell for 11th Hour. That was, I think, 2000. And then I've worked on a number of records since then. The two, you mentioned Vance, because you both re recorded and mixed it, or or did you, you know, had an involvement on the We audio? both recorded it, yeah. Um, In a basement with a Mackie board. A Mac <laughs> Mackie 32 by 8. Yeah, what would you record it on? Um, an LA system. The first 2000, or a 001. Really? And then we had a Personas, one of those 8-channel... Mike Pre things, and a couple of Neves, and a couple of one or two good mics, and a lot of 57s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. Let's go a little bit before then. Now, when did you, you know you recorded these records as an artist? Uh, did you record them on your own, or did you go to studios to record those records? Uh, both. I had a small studio in my house, and um, early on, I would record the instrumental track, put it on tape, take that to a studio, and do my vocals over it, which is not ideal, but it worked. Later, I started doing more traditional studio work. How did you make that transition into, into being a recording engineer? There was an engineer in town named Craig Hansen who worked with Charlie Peacock quite a bit. And he let me apprentice under him for a while. And I just love the process. The process of taking a song, making it better, capturing it. It's really intrigues me. So, and then when this artist that I mentioned earlier asked me to help them do a record, that process was just so enjoyable that I knew that that's, that's my future. Being being a a listener, yeah, which is yeah interesting. And I I never really enjoyed being on stage, and uh, if I could help someone else through production and help get their songs up and running, that I that would be my my preference to help other people. After Jars of Clay, did more work start to come in and uh, more requests for work? Yeah, did. You know, having your name on a Grammy-winning record is it's a huge billboard. And um, I'm very thankful for the career that's been laid in front of me and 
I rarely go through seasons where it's too thin. I've stayed busy for the best 20-something years, and I'm just very grateful. The combination of what you need to do to maintain the studio ecosystem and from not only a technical perspective, but a financial perspective. And we bring this up on the show a lot where we talk about, you know, people get a little bit of money and then they start to pour too much of it into gear. You know, they spend too much on a piece of gear and then no work comes in and then they start having to sell off pieces of gear and then, you know, one step forward, two steps back Mm. kind of situation. What's been your approach into making this work as a long-term business for yourself? I might have crossed that bridge a long time ago. And burnt that bridge <laughs> of having too much gear. I think I try to focus on what is essential. And I have a business manager that holds me accountable. Which actually, I'm just now reminded of that. That business manager of yours uh, is Kurt, yeah. who is from my hometown That's right. in New That's Mexico. Right. And our bands used to practice across, we, we would rent um, storage spaces and roll the doors up and our friends would come. He was in the storage space across the way from yeah. us. And it took a, a, it wasn't until like a few months ago that he said, I had no idea that you knew Vance and Mitch. I mean, talk about small world. Yeah, really. So, so, yeah. so let's talk about Kurt for a sec. What What is it that he does for you as a business manager, and how did that relationship come about? When you run a small business, there's a lot of stuff that's ugly, and the legal stuff and the, uh, the quarterly filings, taxes, things that I have no desire to, to dabble in. And I'm not great at it either, so I look for someone to kind of help me with that. And um, he's great with numbers. And um, he helps sets budgets. He helps, like I said, if I there's a piece of gear I want, I'll ask him, can we afford this? He says, well, we probably could, but will it make you money? And so I'm like, well, maybe. And so it just helps me to second guess my purchases and um, yeah, it's been a great relationship. What's different from a business manager versus a manager? Like when somebody says, I have a manager and I, you know, like I always, oh, I always gotcha, think gotcha. of like the quintessential, I live in LA and I have a manager. That's good to differentiate that. A uh, business manager, at least Kurt, he pays all my bills. So every electric bill that's personal and the studio goes to him and he pays him. And he kind of runs interface between Vance and I. So I don't have to be sending Vance an invoice every month. Vance and I could just hang and drink bourbon. And... <laughs> I mean, I, we run the studio like we co-own it. Yeah. And um, it's a great partnership there. When we did the studio build-out, he really helped manage the budget and... You know, if, if there's ever a legal problem, he goes and takes care of it, and yeah. And is there, as a as a result, he takes a percentage of 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 the income. I pay him a flat fee. Okay. And as opposed to a manager who goes out and makes rain, they find work for you, 
helps negotiate contracts and that kind of thing. Kurt doesn't do that for me. Kurt helps manage the studio business. Yeah. As, you know, it could be a yogurt shop. Yeah. And he also manages my my personal, like our domestic house and like... Taxes. Yep. Interesting. So, so when money comes in, somebody writes, let's say I come in, I write you a check. Do you just take that check and hand it over to Kurt and he just makes sure that everything is taken care of? Well, the way it works for me is sometimes I don't I never see the money. The person, you'd write a check and give it to Cohen, my assistant. He stamps it, deposits it, and um, sometimes I, I never know if I get paid or not. It's just kind of a trust thing, and so far I haven't been stiffed. <laughs> but yeah, and I, he sends an email to Kurt saying, I deposited this money, and it's pretty, pretty smooth. How did that relationship start? I'm just curious. I had a board of directors early on in, in my traveling career uh-huh. that helped make decisions for me, and I didn't have a label, so I didn't want to have all the pressure on me. I wanted to get advice. And he was on that board. And when I stopped traveling, I needed some kind of help with the financial part. And he stepped in. Such a small world. I mean, the fact that Kurt used to play in this band, Second Shift Parking, with these, he was a great (laughs) player and he played with great players. And we'd play shows together in New Mexico State. And the fact that he's your business manager just blows my mind. Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) Well, that's cool. So, would you recommend to other studio owners to consider a business manager? Oh, yeah. Especially if they're not good with money. If, if some people are wired to love to sit down and pay bills and balance checkbooks, and I'm not that guy. So do you, do you basically draw a salary from the studio? Yeah. Yeah. So you, 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 get a che- you get a check once or twice a month, and that's it. Yeah. And... Interesting enough, I, I never see that check because it goes to Kurt. <laughs> and, and, and Kurt puts it in my bank, and it's really weird. It, it feels like, uh, like you know, in Star Trek, they never talk about money or just food keeps coming and people do their jobs. And mm-hmm. That's kind of the way I feel a lot of times. And you, you are married with children, right? Mm-hmm. And I am. How many kids do you have? Two. Two. Okay. I have a 20-year-old daughter who plays fiddle. An 11-year-old son who's a math wizard and a wife to match. And a, and a, and a Ma- wife who is a... Matching wife. Who's also a wizard. Yeah, she's been... She's a marathon runner. She's a, she's amazing. Yeah, somebody in this world has to run. It's not me. Yeah. I can't, <laughs> no. No, not me either. Is your wife a stay-at-home wife or does she work? She works for a company in um, Miami mm-hmm. and uh, works out of her home. She travels quite a bit, but... Our kids are old enough to where we we can manage it. How have you, over the years, managed the work-life balance? And what, how did, like, what's your approach there? And and what does that mean to you? Hmm. Especially when in our world where people like to, hey, man, let's keep going. It's it's sounding great. Let's keep going until 2, 3 in the morning. Well, in Nashville, I have a um, a debatable lifestyle. And uh, people question me on it all the time. When, when we start having kids, I think I made the decision that I wanted to be home at 6 o'clock every night. And I want to be home Saturdays and Sundays. 
So that's my schedule. I work nine to five, nine to six, and um, people have warned me that my career would suffer from it. And I, I suppose in some ways, it, I'm not working with huge, huge artists like some of my peers, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if my career is suffering. It's just a different kind of career. I'm making a living, I love life, I have time to do the things I love. So it, it's working. I may never be famous. You know, Vance is mixing for a famous artist right now as we speak. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad for him. But that's not the lifestyle he chooses, and that's great. Right. Well, and as you say, your career is not suffering because you set your career as, you know, you have the studio, you have clients, you're doing what you love to do. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have your financial house in order, uh, you know, with Kurt on board, helping to, you know, keep things steady. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, crap, you bought this house, right? This building, this house, studio yeah. in. Um, so <laughs> I'd say no. I'd, I, I would... Uh, I would venture to say you're doing the right thing. Not I to, hope so. It's and that brings up a very fascinating and interesting point. It's for those listening, making the decision to do follow these different tracks, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, is is really what you kind of have to come to the conclusion of. I mean, and it sometimes can depend on your age, and depending, and it will also depend on your family life. Um, my last episode, I spoke with uh, a young man by the name of Tremaine Williams. And, you know, Tremaine worked with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And so as a result, he has worked with, like, Janet Jackson, Shaka mm -hmm. Khan, uh, Jermaine Dupree. So he, you know, he works with some pretty high-profile um, uh, artists in that regard. But he's also young. Mm -hmm. Now, Vance, is, Vance has one kid, right? Yes. And his kid is older. 33, I believe, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. he's he's got that freedom to kind of move about and do that, whereas, you know, I, I identify, I think, with your situation for myself just because my kids are 7 and 10. Yeah. And here you have an 11-year-old at home and, and a 20-year-old as well. It's for the recording artist, or sorry, for the recording engineer, um, you know, that's, I think, the choice one has to make and, and be happy with that choice. Yeah, I will add that, Engineers can't make this choice because they're subject to the producer and the artist. But if you're producing, you have a certain amount of control where you can say, these are my, these are my hours and where it's going to be awesome. But if you're being paid by someone to sit by on a console, then you kind of have to do it. And I understand that and I, I, that's kind of sad, but... But they're making records, and that's what they want to do, and that's awesome. As an engineer, I've managed to get away with a little bit of that over the years, that 9 to 5, 9 to 6. Okay, that's great. But most of the time, it's the artist you know, producing or a co-production. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. And obviously, in Nashville, it's a radically different music ecosystem compared to everywhere else. I've brought that up on the show numerous times because <clears throat> there's an infrastructure and a way of doing things. And I'm sure there are little pockets of people doing things slightly different than other pockets. And hmm. I'm curious about life in Nashville from your perspective as in music and in recording. And what are the pros and the cons to that? Hmm. Well, Nashville has become something that it wasn't for me. 
At first, when I first moved here, it wasn't really for music. And I just loved the town. It was full of great parks and nice people. But as I've been here, I've been here 28 years, it's become home. It's, I have so many friends and they're deep relationships. And if I got a job offer to go work for someone in Los Angeles with great, great money, I, I don't think I'd do it. It's just, Nashville's just home for me. And it's all, I guess, what you value. You know, I value family and friends and free time. <laughs> and it, and I'll, I'll make my work schedule around that. Interesting. Interesting. Is there pressure to within Nashville to do things a certain way in terms of, you know, the world of recording? I think there's economic pressure to do things fast and cheap. And there's several friends of mine, fans included, that we don't necessarily prescribe to that. Mm -hmm. And we provide a niche. And that niche is providing an artist an experience of recording that's somewhat lost. And we, we like to put people in a room and make music together. Whereas so many other records are fabricated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I tell a lot of the artists I work with about um, going to Hawaii and staying in this nice resort and walking around and everything's groomed and beautiful, but realizing that nothing is natural. Everything's planted, sidewalks are paved, even the the beach is man-made. It's like, that's not Hawaii. It's made to look like Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I took some four-wheelers into the wilderness and um, saw what Hawaii looks like. And it's raw and it's rough and it's more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And if making records is going to be fabricating music and recording with layers, you know, putting the drums down, then the bass, and then guitar. I don't want to do that. I want to see a band come in and do something live and, and all its raw ugliness and beauty. Yeah. That's, that's what that, music is to me. That's a great, great analogy. It, it provides such a visual for me. Uh, that's interesting to hear that. Is that Vance? Is Vance messed? Sad, yeah. Just, just prepare yourself. Oh, no. Okay, yeah. okay hold on. Oh, my God. <laughs> what are you doing? He can't hear you. He can't hear me? No. Yeah, blah, 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 that, blah, blah. He says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, I'm between mixes. Yeah. Between mixes. You're printing? Printing mixes. Printing mixes. Tell him to get get to work. He said, "Get to work." Hey Matt, what are we gonna do round two? Let's do round two. Let's Sometime. do let's do round two. So let's do it. Okay. I'll do round okay. two. I'll be nicer this time. Vance is constantly growing. 
Growing. Growing inward. Tell them to, in, to quit going to In-N-Out Burger. Outward and upward. Yeah, that's In-N-Out Burger for you. Not really. No, actually, I'm actually shrinking. No, he's, shrink, he's shrinking outwardly, growing inwardly. Yeah. Ask him if he wants yeah, to be uh, well, part of the 100th there. episode. Oh, he's done. He's oh. out. All right. <laughs> <laughs> he just comes and goes. He's like the wind. He's like the wind, yes. Um. Anyways, you know, I think that some people have an image and, and maybe they, maybe with today's modern country music, they don't necessarily have this image, but, you know, growing up, <clears throat> I always, you know, heard country music and thought, okay, you know, that's, that's very natural sounding and very, um, organic. And I think that modern country music today, and I realize that it's not just modern country music that get, gets made in Nashville, but a lot of modern country music that we hear is that fabricated, um, groomed uh, version of Hawaii that you talked about. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other the other types of music. And I I just bring this up because it it sounds that way. The uh, Chris Stapleton record that Vance worked mm -hmm. on uh, has a very organic sound to it. But you know, to be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to differentiate like what is truly manicured and what is organic because manipulation can take place in in so many ways to make you think that something you hear is you think is organic is actually not organic yeah the stapleton record is it's pretty much what you hear is what you what they did yeah and, and it's a fantastic record hard hard to manufacture spirit i will say that yeah it is I think a trained engineer can hear when things are tuned and pocketed a little too too nicely. <laughs> and um, in fact, I've gotten to where if I hear on the radio something slightly pitchy, I smile and I and I get excited that they are actually saying that. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. Um... I've started to, uh, I looked up on my bookshelf and I found, you know, oh, wow, I've got all these like uh, old case logic folders full of CDs. Mm. And I, I started to pull a couple CDs out, put them in the car when I take the kids to school. And I found a, a, a copy of uh, one of the Doors records, the one with mm. uh, Break on Through to the Other Side, 21st Century mm -hmm. Fox. Wow. And um, was listening to that and just kind of, you know, taking a, a closer listen and on my way, I dropped the kids off, and on my way home, I was listening. I was like, wow, that drum, that drum fell just then. That, that was kind of rough. <laughs> and I thought, holy crap. Yeah. That's pretty cool. They just left that in there. Yeah. And I never noticed it until now. There's a spot on Steve Miller's, I think it's Rockin' Me Baby. Mm -hmm. The drum fill at the beginning, it's just, it just goes south, and they kept it. But I never noticed it when I was a kid, you know? Just yeah. cool drums. Yeah, that is kind of a rough fill in the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that's that's interesting. So your whole aesthetic as a producer in your space is really driven towards letting people just go into a room and exist in the natural habitat, so to speak. Yeah. You don't try. Now, you know, I don't want to misportray myself i i do some editing if it needs to be edited and if a vocal is distractingly out of tune i'll i'll pitch a word here and there 
So I'm not a naturalist, but I do lean towards hearing music performed as opposed to fabricated. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about gear for a sec, because you said something a little while ago that um, I wanted to ask about. When, when discussing gear with Kurt, mm-hmm. your business manager, he asked you, you know, will it make you money mm-hmm. uh, when you're considering a purchase? And you, you also said, I keep it to the, uh, the essentials. Mm-hmm. What are the essentials in your mind? And where, where do people tend to overbuy? Like, where, where does it get ridiculous? What do you focus on? Well, it's easy to ask yourself the question, was I making great records before I'm considering purchasing purchasing piece of gear, you know, mm-hmm. said piece of gear? And if you're already making records, you technically don't need it. Um, but you asked me what the essentials are. Mm-hmm. A great mic, at least one. A great mic pre and a great converter. I stumbled upon this classic Neve console and got it basically pennies on the dollar. So it was an easy purchase and um, it's become very integrated into my workflow and my sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple of vintage 1176 that I like, love, LA 2A, um, a couple of RCA BA 1As, a couple of great Neumann mics, 67, 269. A lot of ribbons. We use Burl converters, mm-hmm. which totally changes the changes everything. Um, I haven't noticed that big of a change since I went from LE to full-on Pro Tools. Just the, the going to the one night twos was big, but the Burls are. It's amazing. I think it was a couple episodes ago I was talking with John Schimpf, who is the studio manager for a studio in Oakland, California, uh, called 25th Street Recording. And John and I were really kind of going uh, going into a conversation about, like, some studios, and I don't think you're one of these studios, but some studios tend to, they'll just, like, put stuff up in terms of equipment. They'll just, like, you know, any old piece of gear just to kind of pump up the gear racks to make it look full and some stuff may not be working uh, the maintenance may be lacking and we were talking mm-hmm. about how much better of a situation it is when even a small studio just concentrates on you know having a console that works mm-hmm. that works great and not going too overboard on outboard gear and just having you know a few key pieces that really allow you to get the job done some studios just have way too much stuff and it becomes like, Mm. like I've walked into some studios and I see so much gear. I'm like, I'm not going to use half that as long as the console works and they've got it, you know, one or two compressors. That's all I really need. Yeah. We have a, a shop that has a lot of gear that we don't use. And we could put it out and a little, you know, show people, Hey, look at our gear. But, um, I use most of what I have almost all the time. And the pieces that I don't use all the time have such a cool sound that I want to keep it in my visual perspective to know that that's an option. Like um, Alexa Con Primetime. It just sounds so cool. Change the pitch down. I don't want to forget that I have that 
my toolbox. And um, I, there's a standard Levelor 500 uh, series rack thing. It's called Levelor. It's kind of like a level lock. Okay. But I don't use it a lot, but when I do, it's really cool. See, I like to keep those in sight, in reach, but I, I don't use them a ton. Your NS10s behind you, did somebody do those special for you, that, that, that turquoise yeah. color? Yeah, they're, I have a friend who's an artist named Elizabeth Foster who does amazing work. Yeah. She did, did those for me in exchange for a record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope you're enjoying this conversation with Mitch Dane here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Quite a story, I got to say. Quite a story. So as we usually do, we're going to take a sponsor break here with Audio-Technica. And I want to talk to you about a tube microphone that Audio-Technica makes called the 4060A. And this supersedes the previous version, which was the 4060. And basically, it's a cardioid vacuum tube condenser mic. And uh, it's got a very wide dynamic range that uh, far exceeds that of other tube microphones. High SPL capability, you know, it's the usual. Um, what's really great about this is that uh, AT doesn't take any chances with the, the consistency and the reliability because they individually test and inspect each one for 100% quality assurance, which is pretty rare in today's world of mass-marketed studio mics. So that's the good part. And there is no bad part, really. The price is great. MSRP is $21.55 now, just to, once again, as we always do, we like to take a quick glance on the internet to see what that can be had for. And uh, like if I just do a quick search for AT4060A and I go to shopping, looks like an average of like $1,500, $1,600 street price is what I'm seeing uh, for the mic. So, you know, if you're interested in a tube microphone and a tube condenser, and you don't have the money to buy a vintage mic or the patience to deal with a vintage tube mic that you're going to have to maintain and keep alive and ensure if you'd like to spend a little less but still get a great quality mic, uh, the 4060A is definitely something to consider. You know, the tubes are hand-selected, they're individually tested, and they're aged to maintain peak performance. The diaphragm is a uh, two-micron thick dual diaphragm capsule design, which maintains its pr a precise polar pattern definition across the full frequency range of the microphone. So wide dynamic range, low self-noise, high SPL capability, you know, all the things you would expect from a non-tube condenser, but with the 4060A, you get a little more robust sound than you would from just a straight non-tube condenser. So check it out at uh, audiotechnica.com. It's the AT4060A and it's a, uh, it's available, of course. Uh, with a five-year limited warranty, and it comes with a fantastic shock mount. Hey, you know, it's always good to have a good shock mount. So that's it. Yeah, check that out on your own. Also, there's some samples that we've got up on the uh, Working Class Audio site. If you go over to the uh, WCA bonus content under the Audio-Technica samples, we've got two sets of AT samples. The one at the very is not the one I'm talking about. That That is uh, three different mics uh, that we tested. But what I'm talking about is second down the line of the page. We give you some 24-bit uh, 48K files to download of vocal samples, acoustic guitar, and electric guitar. And uh, you can take a listen for yourself. We've got our friend James Meter doing some singing, and you can uh, see what you think about that. Yeah, judge for yourself. But uh, definitely give it some consideration, the AT4060A from Audio-Technica. Well, that's it for that. Let's jump back into it here with Mitch Dane and continue the conversation here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
advice to those who are thinking about opening a studio now and advice to those who are currently running a studio that may not be at 100% capacity, that may be struggling a little bit, Mm -hmm. what would your advice be, whether it be business, technical, whatever, personality, what do you think makes a studio work? I think you have to ask yourself what your main mission is. And if it's to be a commercial studio where you rent it out all the time, that's way different from like Vance and I who are producers. We happen to have a space where we work. Because we're not selling the studio, we're selling our talent. And um, so most people are engineers and they want to mix records and record people. I would say save up and buy something great. Like instead of spending $1,000 on a condenser, save up and spend three to five grand on a great tube condenser. And, um, and one thing I've learned is every piece of gear you buy can be a savings account for you. Meaning if you buy it cheaper than what it's actually worth, like you get a good deal, mm-hmm. you automatically have equity in it. So you could sell it the next day. Or you could use it for a year and sell it for what you paid for or more. But ideally, if it's a great piece of gear, it's going to appreciate. And after using it for 20 years, you sell it for three to four times what you paid for it. So it's your, it's the best kind of savings account because it will make you money in the long run and it'll make you money now. So most of my gear now, I can sell it tomorrow for more than what I paid for it. And I'm thankful for that because <laughs> I might have to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Someday. With Someday Kurt, soon. With Kurt on your side, you may not have to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And any other points that, uh, about studio ownership you want to mention? It costs a lot. It does. They're, they're, they're kind of money pits, and there's always something going awry. We have five air conditioning units in this building, and one of them is always going down. And that can't happen when you have clients. Especially and, in Nashville. And sadly, it's, it's Vance's control room usually. <laughs> and I have to, you know, if I'm, in, if I'm in bed, I have to come down and see what's wrong with it. And, um, alarm system's always going off. Um, gear breaking, you have to fix. And you have to keep gear running. That drives me crazy when you walk into a studio and nothing works. It, it has to work. I'll get rid of it. Yeah, that's, that is another thing John Schimpf and I talked about in that conversation about gear. It's like, you know, maybe just structure yourself to a point where, you know, you can afford to keep those things repaired and maybe just have less. It's okay mm-hmm. to have less. Yeah. It's not really about quantity Yeah. when it comes to gear. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when, when I think, you know, I'm a, you know, I, I'm freelancing now and I don't, I mean, other than my mix and mastering room here, uh, at home, which is a different animal than a commercial studio. I keep thinking, maybe I'm going to branch out and get a space, but I keep going back to, you know, when you're in it and you're going to do it, you got to be a little 
you, you can't be half-assed about it. You really yeah. got to be, you know, it becomes its own entity. Yep. And if you're going to do a space, you want to make sure that it's a space you're proud of and it's not just like some thrown together thing. Yeah. So true. So, uh, and one, one final question about your gear, uh, the, the need that you got for pennies on the dollar, is it a custom thing or is it a, just a specific number Neve? I know many Neves are kind of like a hodgepodge of two Neves put together and it's, um, it's one of the original 8014s. It's a 16 channel. And I've had it customized and modded by Fred Hill. It has a 16 channel tape return and um, a new center section that's kind of, you know, modded for my workflow. It's got four 2254s in it, which I don't deserve four 2254s, but. Which are compressors or mic pre's? Compressors. Okay. Um, it's got 10 1073s, four 1066s, and two 1084s. So it's it's pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. It's it's more awesome than I am. So I'm very very blessed to have it. This has been awesome. You've spoken on a couple of uh, points. Your Hawaii thing that that was that was pretty spot on. I love that. Uh, and also your story just about listening. And your your very particular, very unique story about your accident and um, how that's affected you in a positive way down the line. That's that's pretty remarkable. Mm, thanks. I'll also add that um, having a studio with someone else is incredibly rewarding. Um, the community aspect of being able to, you know, Vance can pop in when he's printing mixes and say, hey, or I go down there quite often. We do things similarly but we don't see eye to eye on everything and that's okay we push and pull each other and it just really works and um i'm grateful for him so. sometimes uh being in your own space with just yourself uh can start to get become a bubble hmm. and i think having a, a, a another person in the building uh can make for a much more rewarding experience yeah and he's he's more than just a Work partner. He's he's his dear friend. Yeah. We, we do a lot of stuff together outside the studio. Not enough. Well, cool, man. Thank you so much, Mitch. This is this is great. I I've been thinking about having you on for a long time and I was like, who'd make a good seventy fifth guest? I was like, Oh, I haven't talked to oh, Mitch. I'm so honored. Thank yeah. you so much. I think uh, this is this is gonna be a good show. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well you take care and uh tell Vance I'll reach out to him and we'll figure something out for part two. Sounds great. Okay, Mitch. All right. Take See care. Bye-bye. Mitch Dane on the 75th episode of the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to thank Mitch once again for coming on. It was a great, great conversation and uh, appreciate his time coming on. Well, it's that time again, my friends. We are out of time. So I uh, want to, of course, thank Cliff Truesdell and Chuck Smith and Cole Williams for their efforts on the show. And I want to, of course, thank our sponsors, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, Gearsluts.com, and Universal Audio. I want to give a sincere thank you to you all for continued listening here over the many episodes, and I hope you will continue in the future. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called 
audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 